I'm Betsy Shepard, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is John Porcelino. John Porcelino is a leading author and illustrator in the independent comics and zine movement. His minimalist sketches and biting yet earnest storytelling have earned him a devoted readership, and he's best known for his autobiographical series, King Cat Comics, which he has been self-publishing since 1989. John received the prestigious Ignatz Award in 2005 for his book, Diary of a Mosquito Abatement Man, which tells of his real-life experiences as a pest control worker. His latest book, The Hospital Suite, gives an intimate and darkly humorous telling of his struggles with various debilitating illnesses. John Porcelino, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Why don't you take us back to where it all started and tell us what first got you interested in comics? I was just one of those kids who... I was always drawing as long as I can remember and always writing. And I was always really interested in books, the page, the printed page, you know. I clearly remember the day going in and getting my Chicago Public Library card for the first time when I, I guess I was probably like five or something. And basically since then, I've had a stack of library books next to my bed that I barely get through, but I've always got a stack of library books. I love newspapers. I love magazines. And so... It just kind of made sense for me that I would try to make my own little books. Comics, I think, was just a natural thing for me, given all my interests. You know, it was words, it was pictures, it was making little books. So I've been drawing comics, I mean, really just about as long as I can remember. I never was like a real comic book kind of kid. I didn't read superhero comics or anything. I had a few handful of comics that I would buy. You know, I'm I'm just old enough that I used to buy my comics at the newsstand at the train station, you know, and, you know, they'd sell candy and gum and comic books. And so I had a few of those, but mostly my exposure to comics was in the newspaper, the comic section of the newspaper. I would just say it was words and it was pictures, and it seemed very natural for me to put those things together. And you're you're best known for many comics, and it would make sense since you, since most of your influences were cartoons in the newspapers. For me, I mean, the benefit, I think, of, of my kind of background with comics was that when I decided, you know, when I was kind of a teenager, uh, I was exposed to uh, a couple of the great alternative newsweek, newspaper, weekly newspaper comics. I would get the Chicago Reader, which had Life in Hell by Matt Groening and Ernie Pook by Linda Berry. And it was kind of when I saw those things. I, I knew I wanted to always, always knew I wanted to be an artist, but it was kind of as an adolescent when I found those comics that it kind of rekindled this thing. And so I never really had any preconceptions about what comics could be. Kind of from day one, I felt like they could look like anything. They could be about anything. They could be done in any kind of way. And uh, so I feel kind of lucky about that. Some of my friends who grew up with like superheroes and stuff like that, that's that's kind of a baggage that they I think it took them years of devoted effort to kind of shed some of that stuff. But I, I never really had that from from day one. Comics just could be anything I wanted them to be. As far as mini comics are concerned, you know, it was it was just a matter of I would make these little booklets when I was a kid, and I'd just make one copy. I'd draw it on paper and stick it in my desk drawer. And late 70s, early 80s, 
this fantastic new technology came along called the photocopier. I mean, they had been around, but they kind of became ubiquitous, you know. You'd see them everywhere at the library or in, you know, drugstores and stuff. And my dad had a photocopier at his office where he worked. And so it occurred to me I could take these little books I had made that I'd never shown anybody and take them in and make photocopies of them. And so I started doing that and giving those to my friends at school. You know, I'd make six copies or whatever. And uh, I did that for a number of years. It wasn't until much later that I realized there was this whole zine network of people who self-publish their own little magazines of all kinds, you know, comics, but, you know, poetry, writing, political zines, anything, you know, anything that somebody's really fascinated and interested in, there was some zine out there that they made. And so eventually I discovered that world. And that was when things really changed for me because I realized that the potential to communicate through this little photocopied booklet form was much, much larger than I'd ever imagined. You know, instead of just my handful of friends at school, it was people all over the world who were doing this kind of thing. And so when I discovered that world, I mean, I feel like that's where I really fit in. You know, I've never looked back. I still self-publish and hope to do so as long as they keep making paper. It seems like there's there's a lot of nostalgia, especially from a later later generation who weren't involved in the zine culture. But the fact that there was this material object that connected people from all parts of the country um, through subcultural interests is fascinating. I'm wondering if you can tell me about changes that you've observed in zine culture since the Internet age. Zines are alive and well, despite all the odds against them in the digital age. Clearly, a lot of people who would have done a zine back in the 80s or early 90s or whatever just have blogs or tumblers or whatever they have nowadays. Like, it's you know, it keeps shifting. But the Internet has also facilitated contacting people, getting in touch with people, news about zines. You know, there probably are a few zine people out there that are so committed to the print form that they won't touch a computer or use it or whatever. But I think most people saw the Internet as a real opportunity. For me, my whole thing with doing comics and doing zines was to connect with people. And so clearly the Internet is a great way to do that. There's bad things about the Internet or what I consider bad things about the Internet, but there's a lot of really great things. And and one of the really great things is the ease with which it's you're able to connect with people, especially nowadays internationally. Whereas in the olden days, you'd have to you'd hear I'd hear about some French cartoonist that sounded really cool, and I have a friend who was going over there, and I'd say try to track these things down, or I'd come across an address and I'd send off a letter, you know, and and say you know I'd like to find out how to get your comic and. You know, it would take a week to send it to Europe, and then they'd get this letter. They'd have to look at it, figure it out, and they'd write back. It would take another week, and eventually, maybe I would get this comic in my hand. But nowadays, you know, I, I sit and have chats with people all over the world in in real time, and that's amazing. The thing with the internet that I think has benefited zines, aside from that too, is that it's just kind of the people who are interested in actually putting something down on paper and going through the effort of creating a self-published paper zine 
are people who are pretty committed to that format. And so I would say that there probably are less zines now than there were in the golden age or whatever, but the quality of them is on a whole much, much higher. You know, the the people who are committed to making paper objects are really committed because of their love of that form and the interesting things you can do with that. And so most of the zines I see nowadays are are, are pretty good. Just because, you know, if, if you don't have that kind of crazy passion, it's just easier to post a Tumblr post or type something on Facebook. You know, it's had its ups and downs. I've been doing it long enough that I see the zine world comes and goes in waves and it gets really it peaks and there's great interest in zines and then it kind of goes down and then it comes back up again so to me it's just the way i think about things i i don't really think about those peripheral things too much i just keep doing it let's take the the french zine example that you just gave if you find a a really great and inspiring zine and you only see it in digital form do you miss having an artifact of that relationship with someone yeah, I, I mean, I'm just one of probably a dying breed, frankly, of people who just I prefer to hold something in my hand and turn the pages and, and look at it. And I, I realize that that is rapidly, it's already old-fashioned, but it's almost rapidly becoming a little bit crazy behavior. Uh, this guy, Dan Stafford, finished making a documentary film about King Cat. And when it was done, we were like, okay, so we want to get this out. How do we do it? Well, I guess you stream it online. And I was kind of like determined that there should be a DVD of this thing just because I wanted to be able to have some physical thing in my hand. And I know that some of my readers, maybe most of my readers, would appreciate that too. But it's clear the younger generation looks at it as this unnecessary physical object that will just clutter up their lives or whatever. They can stream it online whenever they want to and, you know, not have to put it in a box when they move. And I suppose there's some something to that too, but I'm not there yet. You mentioned some of the, the comic books that you did as a child that you only had one copy of. Do you still have those? I do. In fact, just the other day I've been organizing uh, some of my old papers and stuff, and I came across the first one, which was called Super Dog. It was uh, as thrilling as you can imagine. I think that the title Super Dog pretty much sums it up. I don't think you have to describe it any more than that. But uh, I still do have those things, and uh, I've actually, I know they're your rivals, but I've I've been in uh, negotiating, not negotiating, I've been in developing an agreement with OSU, in Columbus, they have, uh, at the Billy Ireland Library, they have the largest public collection of comic book material. And uh, so all that stuff will go to them when I bid adieu <laughs> to this planet. But So I've been kind of going through and, and organizing some of that stuff for them, and I just came across those things. They're, they're still there. So what made you take the leap in actually publishing King Cat back in 1989? I had been making these little booklets like I mentioned, and it was about 87 or so that I discovered this larger network of zine publishers and things. And so I had been publishing uh, like an art and poetry zine called Kosoiko, which was comics and drawings and poetry and prose and just weird little things that I would come across and people would contribute and I'd gather it all together and kind of work as an editor. At some point I discovered there's a... uh, French-Canadian cartoonist Julie Doucet, and she was publishing in zine form uh, her comic, Dirty Plot. And uh, I 
I got a hold of one of those and it's really obvious. I mean, I when I was a young kid, I made these comics that were all my own work. But when I got Dirty Plot, it really inspired me to want to do a, a new zine that would be all my own work. Instead of gathering stuff from a bunch of different sources, and I would contribute material to my own magazine. But mostly I was working as an editor and culling stuff and you know bringing stuff together, setting up pages and printing them. And I wanted to do a new zine that would be all my own work. So it would be this really personal kind of expression of my own. And that was uh, what King Cat was. So, uh, you know, pretty soon after I started King Cat, my interest in doing these other zines kind of faded. Because once I got a taste of doing this magazine that was all my own work, that I it was just dependent on me. I was responsible for everything in it. Uh, that was so exciting that... I just kind of lost interest in the other stuff. So I've been doing King Cat ever since. It's been over over 25 years. Yeah. How has it changed since the first issue of King Cat? Well, the first issue was printed in an edition of 18 copies. I don't exactly remember how I came up with that number, but it seemed like the sensible number to make. I think I kept one. You know, I gave one to my dad. I probably still had those six or seven friends from high school. And then there were a few left over that I could sell at the punk rock record store on their magazine stand and, uh, you know, do mail order. There's a magazine called Fact Sheet 5 that kind of collected all these. It was kind of ground central for the zine community. And so everybody, you'd do a zine, you'd send it to Fact Sheet 5. They would write up a little capsule review with ordering information and then send that out to everybody who had contributed to Fact Sheet 5 or sent in their zine. And... uh, so you'd get it in the mail and be this magazine full of hundreds and hundreds of zines with little descriptions. And that's how you connected with new people was through the mail, through Fact Sheet 5. And so, you know, I probably set aside three or four copies for ho- hopefully somebody who read Fact Sheet 5 would send me 35 cents and a stamp, which was, that was the price at the time, 35 cents and a stamp. And so, you know, I mean, nowadays I do about 2,000 copies but it's still photocopied. In terms of the logistics of the way it's changed, it's just a lot more work getting things together. You know, distributing 2,000 copies is different than distributing 18, but it's always just kind of grown organically. You know, it's just if I do a certain print run and that issue sells out a little bit quicker than normal, then I usually up it a couple hundred on the next one and the next for the next print run. But in terms of the comics themselves, you know, when I started doing them, I was 20 years old. I was kind of a wild kid. You know, I was very punk rock inspired. I thought the world was kind of crazy. I was kind of probably angsty. But more I viewed the world as kind of this ridiculous thing. And so my comics were very spontaneous, kind of crazy, anything goes. I would just literally, I'd get an idea for a comic. I'd sit down and draw it and put it in the done pile. And when I had 12 pages or whatever, I'd go down and make a new copy of King Cat. So over time, I, you know, began to take a lot more time with it and and actually go back and edit things or fix typos, you know, and things like that. So nowadays, I usually get about an issue a year out, whereas that first year I was doing about two per month. So I got a lot of issues under my belt the first year or two of doing it. But I had no uh, filter going at all. You know, it was just throw it down on paper and when it's done, put it out in the world and see what happens. So I, I spend a lot more time 
uh, with things now, and it's it's a much more deliberate kind of process for me. But I, you know, I think that's just a matter of getting older and also getting better. Hopefully, taking more time and maybe being a little more thoughtful about what I'm doing. But you know, it's still the same. It's still little comics about what has happened to me. Are you ever envious of a younger John Porcelino and being able to kind of just put out stream of conscious comics? Yeah, I actually struggle with that a little bit because I, I'm constantly battling this thing in my head, which is like my comics nowadays are very precise and very minimal. And even the writing is that way, too, where I will sit for a month and, you know, sweat which word to use in a certain sentence and things like that. And the old me would have just laughed, I think, or cried to see the the current me acting that way. But you get, gain some and you lose some. And I gained more control and I gained a more precision with what I want to say and how I want to say it. But there is a little bit of that spontaneity that just gets kind of ground out through that process, obviously. And so I still struggle a little bit with trying to bring some of that spontaneity back in and like not sweating things too much if I can help it. And sometimes that comes back to bite me. You know, I'll be like, I'll put a new issue out and I'll look back. And I'll be like, I wish I had spent like another couple days on this comic. I could have made it a little bit better. But so I'm kind of trying to find that, a balance that works for me between that the spontaneity and kind of the openness of the early years and the more pr- precise kind of painstaking process that I do now. But it's constantly evolving. That's something that's really clear to me is that this process is always in flux. And so, you know, I'm open to that. And I'm open to stumbling a little bit while I figure those things out as well, if that's what happens. Are there certain tenets or aesthetics that you're pretty dead set on in keeping in the King Cat comics? I like black and white. <laughs> I joke about it. I have this new motto that's it is kind of a it's mostly a joke. It's probably 51 or 52 percent joke. But I've been telling people color is a tool of the man. Color is this like unnecessary luxury that you can you can put in your comics. But I mean, nowadays with digital technology and the way printing has become so much cheaper and accessible, you know, a lot of modern comics are mind-blowing, rainbow-colored, you know, almost psychedelic-colored comics. And I distribute comics, and so I'll, like, I'll go to festivals and have a table of comics, and there's all these, like, amazing, brightly-colored beautiful objects on the table and then there's the little corner of the black and white photocopied uh, king cats and so I kind of I don't, I really don't have anything against color but I've kind of learned to think about comics in black and white and uh, I can't imagine really ever trying to do m- much in color some tenants I always redraw the little king cat in the corner on the cover the king cat logo that's a little different and usually kind of reflects my state of mind when I'm drawing it. From the early on, I just tried to make art that was natural to me. I tried not to force it to be something that it didn't want to be. I tried not to worry too much about comparing it to what other people were doing. I was always really concerned with trying to do something unique. So I've just kind of let it evolve as it wanted to evolve over the years.
So there's probably a few rules in there, but I break them every once in a while. In the hospital suite, um, there's one panel that really stuck out to me. It's an empty, large panel that reads, Attainment is Emptiness. And you use a lot of minimalism and empty space to communicate a lot of meaning. Can you talk more about the role of minimalism in your aesthetic? Well, my own particular approach to comics is such that, like, I view comics as a form of writing. And by that, I mean, obviously, there's text in it. But the imagery as well, to me, is a form of writing. When I draw a cat, I'm not concerned as an artist with drawing every hair on the cat and every whisker or whatever. I'm concerned with putting down some kind of visual signifier that the reader reads as cat. The same way when you read the letter C-A-T, it's kind of this abstracted form that doesn't necessarily have any meaning in and of itself. It's just you you learn to read and you learn the alphabet and you learn that this string of abstract shapes, C-A-T, symbolizes a cat, you know, the cat that you have on your windowsill at home. I've always tried to, or maybe not always, but at some point I became more focused on, like, what's the minimum amount of information I can put down on the page that still conveys effectively what I'm trying to say. I want my comics to be kind of seamless most of the time. Sometimes I don't. I want the reader to be able to kind of get into them and kind of immerse themselves in this world that's on the page and move through it without too much distraction or confusion or fussiness. And so because of that, I think naturally my comics have become more and more minimal over time. Not that that's the best or only way to make comics, obviously. I love comics of all types, and I read comics by people who are amazing at rendering reality and stuff like that. But for me personally, that was the approach that I that felt right for me to take. And so the minimalism, I mean, it, it comes from that attempt to tell a story clearly, but also really efficiently. You know, I've just as a person, I've always been attracted to those kind of minimal forms, whether it's visual art or music or writing, you know, movies, things that are very are simple and kind of straightforward. Those are the kind of things that have always resonated with me. So it's just, I think, natural that my own art kind of took that path. I'm Betsy Shepard, and you're listening to Profiles on WFIU. My guest today is artist John Porcellino. We'll be back after a short break.
your work is largely autobiographical, and your most recent work, The Hospital Suite, gives extremely personal snapshots about your life and struggles. Are there any differences between John Porcelino, the person, and John Porcelino, the character, in your work? Sure. You know, yeah, that's would be true for anybody. Um, there's stuff I leave out or, you know, I, I don't really add stuff. There's, you know, I may omit certain things, but I'm usually pretty frank about my stupidities and failings, you know, as well as the things that come off okay. So it's not like I'm hiding stuff so much, um, but just presenting what seems appropriate at at any given time. I mean, the thing that's a little, I think, is interesting about the new book, my previous book with Drawn and Quarterly was called Map of My Heart, and that collected comics from King Cat that were drawn during the time period that the stuff in the hospital suite was happening to me, if that makes any sense. So Map of My Heart is kind of like this more reflective, kind of poetic, refined response to this stuff that happened to me, these crazy physical health problems, which led to crazy mental health problems. And so Map of My Heart is kind of like the refined version of Hospital Suite. Hospital Suite is like just spilling your guts. It's just, it's not as flowery. It's not as poetic. It's very much more just like, this is the story of what happened to me. Here's how it happened. This is what it was like. And the whole time that I was going through these kind of physical problems and the mental health problems, I wanted to find some way to express what was happening to me in King Cat, right? That's the way I've always dealt with whatever's come up in my life is making comics about it. But I was kind of stuck because I didn't know where these stories were going. And then a large part of the book I dealt went many, many years dealing with really severe obsessive-compulsive disorder. And so obsessive-compulsive disorder made it almost impossible for me to talk about just about anything in my comics. It was really harrowing and difficult to talk about anything, let alone to talk about this terrible disease that was wrecking my life that I was totally ashamed of having and embarrassed of having and had spent all this time trying to hide. What had happened was eventually... I did the book, Map My Heart, and would go out on tour and, you know, do book signings and talk about the book. And, and I felt I had to talk a little bit about what was actually happening to me in the, on, on the edges of these comics, including the OCD. And the response from people in the audience was so compelling to me. Like almost every event, somebody would come up to me afterwards and say, like, I'm really glad you talked about this stuff. Either I have obsessive compulsive disorder or some other kind of anxiety disorder or somebody in my family does or one of my, you know, my significant other or something. And I realized how important it was just to be frank about this. And I was finally at a place in my life where I could be frank about it. So in in a large part, the stuff that's in the hospital suite was stuff I'd worked on for many years, but never really had the perspective to put down on paper in a final comics form. Hearing from those readers was kind of the direct inspiration for like, I just want to tell what happened finally to get it out of my system and also hopefully for the benefit of other people who are struggling with these kind of things because there's obviously such a stigma, with, especially with mental health in, in this country, and hiding it 
just fed its power for me. As soon as I started talking openly about it, it was like it, that spell kind of started to break, you know. And in, in real life, too, I mean, there's a scene in the book where, like, I decide, like, I just don't care anymore. Who knows that I have this thing? You know, if I had diabetes, I wouldn't be ashamed of it, right? So I have this illness. It's a physical illness. It's affecting the, the physical organ that it's affecting is my brain. But it's still, I mean, I didn't ask to have obsessive compulsive disorder. And there's a scene in the book where my friend Noah gets in the car with me for the first time. And I went through this long period of time where in order to drive my car, I wore plastic bags on my hands <laughs> because I was afraid to touch the steering wheel. And it was just like, well, I guess Noah's going to find out that I drive around town wearing plastic bags on my hand. And I just don't care. You know, I just don't care anymore. I'm just like, Noah, this is how I live my life. Deal with it. It's crazy. It's weird. But it's how I get through the day. And even just stuff like that helps break the spell. So I, I wanted to do a book that would put all this stuff out in the open. The nuts and bolts of it didn't beat around the bush anymore. And so far, the response has been pretty good. You know, to uh, especially I heard from a lot of people on this tour already who suffer from anxiety and who hopefully it's helped. For our readers who are not yet familiar with the hospital suite, it opens with you being beset by an excruciating but mysterious source of pain. And then it kind of spiraling into different forms of anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, and also relationship traumas. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if writing about it was therapeutic for you. You talk about how OCD was a, a way for you to impose order on mm -hmm. chaos in your life. I'm wondering if writing comics is another way of imposing order on your life's events. I think somebody at Indiana University should throw some money behind a study on cartoonists and OCD because it's, let me, like when I would meet a cartoonist for the first time and maybe, I mean, when you have really bad anxiety, you can, you learn to read it in your environment, right? And I'd meet a cartoonist or something for the first time and be like, this person has bad anxiety. You could just tell they do things a little quirky. They maybe have a little OCD or something like that. And uh, I always... At first, I'd be like, what a small world, you know, that this other cartoonist also acts, does this kind of stuff. And now when I meet a cartoonist and they're like, yeah, I have OCD, I'm just like, join the club. You know, like, yeah, of course you do, because there's something in our blood that makes us obsessive compulsive. I think any artist probably is a little bit obsessive compulsive. You kind of have to be to have this passion for something that a lot of people don't understand. And to, in order to have the drive to continue going, you have to be a little bit compulsive. But, you know, there really is something about being a cartoonist. I don't know what part of the circle it is, if it's like being obsessive compulsive leads you into cartooning, or if cartooning leads you into being obsessive compulsive, it's probably a little bit of both. But, I mean, my friend Ivan Brunetti, uh, the cartoonist, he always used to say to me, like, when you think about it, we're taking this whole huge world, right, with all its contradictions and pain and weirdness and joy and condensing it down to these little boxes, right? We draw this little line around the world, and there's your little world right there, you know? And so there's something to that. And I do think 
if you look like if you've ever had a chance to look at cartoonists' original pages, it's very interesting to see the you can see the process, right? You see tons of whiteout, there's pencil marks that are erased, there's notes in the margins, people tape stuff down, you like cut redraw a whole panel and glue it down over the one that was messed up. And you do all that stuff in an effort so that in the final finished product, the book you hold in your hands, all that stuff is invisible, right? All that stuff doesn't come through into the printed form. You're trying to hide all your mistakes and all your flaws. That's a little bit armchair psychology, but I think there's something to it for cartooning and the way it makes you crazy. Like the, you're, you're taking this whole world and putting it onto this page and trying to like somehow white out or delete or clean up all the crazy parts, the, the parts that don't work. That's a little bit crazy <laughs> right there. The book covers a lot of different experiences that you had that were really painful and traumatic. And I was wondering if there, there's a lot of, you talked about earlier about it being very visceral. And that's kind of offset by a lot of theological and spiritual musings. I was wondering if you consider yourself a spiritual person. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, I feel I get a little squeamish talking about it because I certainly don't feel like I'm a person who has any answers figured out and I'm not interested in proselytizing or anything to people. But, I mean, to me, from a very young age, I had a sense that there was more to the world than what we normally experience or or what we're able to perceive. And it was just a weird feeling. I, I describe it like a tip of the tongue kind of feeling of like, okay, there's this thing here, but I can't really put my finger on it. And when you try to look for it, it slips away. Honestly, as a person and definitely as an artist, that feeling was what kind of propelled me through life, trying to figure this thing out, trying to figure out what is this thing that's going on. I draw autobiographical comics because I'm interested in the experience of being alive, of my own life, but also other people's lives. You know, I when I read stuff, I like to read autobiography or biographies or history or essays or things like that. I'm very much a nonfiction kind of guy because I think that Life is a really interesting thing, and I'd like to understand it. So in that way, I yes, I am a very spiritual person. Now, I will say in the hospital suite, there's a little subcategory of obsessive-compulsive disorder called scrupulosity, which is kind of uh, taking OCD and applying it to that spiritual realm. So people with scrupulosity end up having these intense, crazy, passionate, but conflicting thoughts about God and the devil and good and evil and sin and redemption and these kind of find themselves in these impossible to navigate moral quandaries, right? Where, okay, well, this seems like the right thing to do, but if I do this, it might have this other unforetold consequence that I need to try to avoid. And it becomes this huge soup of ethical stewing about life and how to react to it. Now that I definitely have, and I write about it in the book. And so, you know, what line does like a normal, I'm using, now I'm using air quotes for our 
listeners at home. Uh, what at what point does a normal spiritual interest and and desire for understanding cross a line into craziness? It might be a little different for different people, but there is a line there. And like I I say in the book, one of the hardest parts with OCD is that you're crazy, right? You're doing all this crazy stuff. But the other part of your brain, there's another part of your brain that's perfectly rational and is, is watching you do all this crazy stuff and just fuming. You know, just like, why are you doing this again? Why You don't have to wash your hands 100 times a day. Uh, you don't have to put bleach on the doorknobs or whatever. <laughs> but it's so hard to, you know, the part of your brain in OCD that's going crazy is the fight or flight instinct, right? So it's looking at this every normal day thing, like my shoe came untied, shoelace came untied and dragged on the floor, right? That's just a normal thing that happens and you bend over and you tie your shoe and go on with your life. Whereas in OCD, that happens and this part of your brain goes haywire and tells you like, you, this is this is it. Like you, you're in absolute mortal danger because the shoelace touched the ground. So you know, the other part of your brain knows that's crazy. So in terms of my spirituality and dealing with this, part of my brain is spiritual and approaches life through the a lens, that lens. And then part of my brain was crazy and kind of doing the same thing, but in a really distorted, painful way. So it's always a trick to figure out. And that's one of the hardest things, I think, with OCD. It's like a disease of doubt. It's, it's constant doubt. Like, I know this is the way things are, but what if they're not? What if this time they're not that way? And, and that doubt just, you know, it, it insinuates itself into everything you do. The obsessive compulsive part of your brain is, is constantly telling you to seek order and routine. But there's this other part of the hospital suite in which you're constantly trying to remind yourself or coach yourself into a non-attachment state of mind. And you seems ritualistically that you recite the Buddhist Heart Sutra. Well, yeah, I, the Heart Sutra shows up when I'm in the hospital. And, um, I mean, the Heart Sutra is a Buddhist prayer, I guess you could call it that, for maybe lack of a better word, that, I mean, Buddhist, most Buddhists generally recite on a daily basis. It's like a core teaching in, in Buddhism. And, um, you know, when I was going through this situation, you know, you turn to your faith, right? You know, and so, yeah, I mean, it's true. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. That's the Heart Sutra. There are some really heartbreaking scenes in the book. One that sticks out in my mind is when you realize that your your former wife is actually going to be leaving. And um, I'm wondering if it was if it was difficult revisiting those experiences and also knowing that you were going to have to share them with the public. Yeah, I mean, you know, when my first wife and I split up during this period, maybe the first issue of King Cat that happened afterwards, I didn't really mention it. And then maybe the one after that, I usually have a little introduction in the front for the reader, you know, here's what's going on or whatever. And you know, I was like, well... You know, Karen and I split up. Say la vie, or whatever I said. 
the reality of it is, is, of course, a lot more complicated and emotional and painful. And um, again, that's what I think I wanted to accomplish. If there was something accomplished with the hospital suite was just to pre- present this period of my life in a in a very straightforward way. And so, yeah, I realized I'm going to have to talk about some of this stuff that I really skirted originally in my comics. And that was one of them, you know. You know, it had been a while since that had happened, but I would be lying to say that it didn't bring up a lot of emotional uh, stuff for me, drawing those pages. But that's your job as an artist, right, is to go to those places that are not necessarily comfortable and bring that what you find there, bring it to the surface. And uh, so, yeah, it was it's it was tough to write about some of that stuff. But I do feel like it's my job, <laughs> you know, so I'm I'm able, I think, in situations like that to know what is the right approach, hopefully, and to kind of put my head down and move through it and 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 put it out there but yeah it was a little tough and uh you know there's enough i mean just writing about the ocd the crazy stuff that i would do i mean i'm i'm you know i'm still embarrassed by a lot of that stuff you know i mean and there were scenes where it was like i really i don't necessarily know if i want to write this scene but it's important to to you know to be honest about things when you can and i felt like i was in a position a situation where it was time to be as honest as i could you know without putting frills on everything let's change pace you mentioned earlier when you first started doing comics you were coming out of this punk rock scene and you first started selling your your comic books at a punk rock record store I was wondering if you could compare the do-it-yourself zine culture to the DIY punk culture that you were also part of. Well, for me, they were all just part of the same thing. You know, it was like, you know, in the punk scene, you don't just go out and listen to bands and play shows. You start your own band, right? You get a guitar, play the drums, and learn how to play it to some extent. And you put on your own shows, and you record your own music and you put out tapes or LPs or CDs or whatever, or MP3s nowadays. So it was just, you know, completely natural that, well, if you draw comics or write or whatever, you put out your comics and your writing and you make a little book and you do it yourself and you distribute it yourself and you get it out there. You know, I think early on in the kind of underground comic scene that I was and am a part of, those two were kind of hand in hand. That kind of do-it-yourself mentality and aesthetic that came from punk or underground music, underground writing, things like that, naturally flowed into cartooning, into comics. The difference is that nowadays there are so many people involved in the world of comics it's crazy to th- when I think about it. I mean, when I think of, like, when I was starting King Cat, I, I want to say there was, like, 
I could count on two hands the number of people who are doing comics that I felt were doing things in a similar way or with a similar intention or whatever. And I mean, now there's thousands. And I was just at SPX, this uh, big comics festival in suburban DC a few weeks ago. And it's just, you know, there's thousands and thousands of people. There's hundreds of people exhibiting their books. And uh, at this point, not everybody comes from that background, you know. So for me, the two went hand in hand. You, you, If you're involved in the punk scene, you do things for yourself. You express yourself. That's part of being part of that scene. And so making my own magazines, my own comics, self-publishing them, all that, it just, it was, I didn't even think about it. It's just the way it was. You know, to me, uh, one of the great things about the punk scene was the way that it kind of evaporated boundaries you know so like you'd go to a punk show and if you've ever been to one you learn that like the distinction between audience and performer is very nebulous to the point where like some bands won't even get on a stage they refuse to get on a stage you just stand on the floor with the audience like you you won't even have that symbolic idea of being above them somehow and so to me that's what comics were as well i was trained as a fine artist you know i was a painter in college and i knew i wanted to be an artist from some early age i was always writing painting and making comics and and these things and at some point i realized comics had that effect as well of removing those barriers you know I could make a comic about something that happened to me. And typically I worked like manual labor jobs, warehouse jobs or assembly line jobs or whatever. And I could make a comic and go in the break room with the guys I worked with in the warehouse and give them the comic and they could read it and laugh or cry or tell me I was stupid or whatever their reaction was. But it was this very direct way of communicating. It wasn't like making a painting and hanging it on a wall in a gallery somewhere. Uh, you know, it was removing that stage, and it was making art that you just literally you put into people's hands, and you put, you you know, if ten people wanted this art, you can make ten copies. If ten thousand people wanted this art, you can make ten thousand copies. It was accessible and affordable, and that's what I brought. You know, when I started making comics, those are the kind of ideas I bought from that punk scene. Um, so to me, there's just it's inherent in the way I approach it. But it's not that way for everybody, which is understandable, you know. But for me, there's kind of no separation. You're you're a musician, and a lot of your comics have a lot of sounds, and and that is, you know, that's pretty common in comic books. Mm-hmm. You have the kapow and bang, <laughs> you know, word sure. bubbles, but you use a lot of onomatopoeia to kind of create an atmosphere. You also, I'm not sure if our, our listeners know this, but you also have hyperacusis, which yes. is a sensitivity to sound. Yes, I'm wondering if you can explain your relationship to sound and how you work through that in your comics. Well, yeah, I mean. Music is a big deal to me, you know. Um, There was a period where my ears were so bad that it was pretty difficult to listen to to music. Um, Hyperacusis is kind of a condition where 
you'd call it like a collapsed tolerance to sound. So like sounds that would be everyday sounds that people would not necessarily consider loud or, you know, painful are loud and painful to your ears. And um, so it made everyday life get really weird really fast when I came down with this thing. I mean, to a certain extent, it's what led me to focus kind of single-handed or single-focused on comics because I was always, I was a musician, I was playing in bands, I had a record label that I ran, I was doing my comics, you know, I had like my fingers in all these little pies. And uh, when the ear thing, hearing thing happened, I was like, well, I guess I'm not going to be playing in rock bands anymore. So what can I do? Well, comics are relatively quiet. You can sit there and do them yourself and you know, sit at home and kind of be in a more controlled environment where where I wasn't in pain all the time. So that kind of led me to focus on my comics more specifically. But I mean, music to me is, I probably draw more inspiration for my comics from music than I do from comics, other comics themselves. You know, there's something about music that's really, I mean, music is rational and irrational at the same time, meaning that you know, there's words and you're conveying things, but the emotional pull of music is also nonverbal. And that's something that I try to bring into my comics as well. Comics have that same ability of communicating nonverbally and verbally. So, uh, you know, but even down to just like the nuts and bolts of like when I put a new issue of King Cat together, I view it as like an album. And the comics in there are, are the songs on the album. And it's one thing to like write and record the songs, but then you have to you see, sequence them. You want the album to start out a certain way, and then maybe you kind of move through a certain mood with some of the songs. And then it switches to some other approach. And, and that's how I think about actually putting the comics together into an issue of King Cat to the point where there's usually an A an A side and a B side. You know, I mean, again, I'm like showing my age, but, you know, you the A side ends, you stop, there's a little pause, you pick it up, you flip the record over, put the needle down, and the, the B side starts. And so, you know, oftentimes, like in King Cat, I have a letters column and like a top 40 list where I write about the things that I, you know, have been making me happy lately. And so those usually are those are like usually the the point where you get up and flip the record and it kind of is like the little break between the A side and B side. So I think about music. I mean, and nowadays my ears are so much better. I mean, I can listen to music. I probably am not going to be playing in a rock band anytime soon or going to see a rock concert anytime soon. But I listen to music and it is really impactful on the way I think about my own art. Um, you know, I think of the comics as songs. The title of the hospital suite ostensibly is about the time that you spent in hospital rooms, but it also seems to refer to a suite in terms of a, a set of compositions. Yeah. Can you talk about how just the book fits together as a whole, the separate parts? And Yeah. I, I mean, originally, there's, so there's three stories in there, and there, each of the stories is about a distinct part of this kind of physical and mental health road I was on. Um, and... I wrote them separately. I, I wrote them individually with probably the idea that somewhere down the road they would be three individual 100-page novellas or whatever you'd want to call them. 
But as I got more into them, you know, the process moved further along. I began to see how they're independent stories, but they clearly overlap and they reflect upon each other, you know. So, and one kind of moves into the other uh, just chronologically. And so I began to think of them, like you say, as a whole. And uh, it was probably several years ago uh, as I was working on this that it occurred to me to, you know, these should be just one book. And part of it was that clearly they belong together, these three stories. Uh, They work together to tell kind of a larger narrative. And uh, but also like um, I was very... I'm a good Midwesterner. I don't like to talk. Despite the fact that I'm an autobiographical cartoonist, I don't necessarily like to talk about myself. I certainly don't like to complain or, you know, you just keep everything and internalize everything. And um, I really didn't want to be the guy who, like, every two years puts out another book about some horrible thing that happened to him. (laughs) And it was like, you know what? Not only do these all go together... But I'll just get this all out of my system in one fell swoop. You know, people can pick it up, digest it. I can move on. The readers can move on. It's not going to be like, hey, two years later. And now here's the next chapter of, you know, this miserable part of my life. So that was uh, part of it as well. You know, like I just wanted it to be. When you were talking about the comics being therapeutic, they are therapeutic. And to a certain extent, I looked at this book and actually putting this stuff down on paper after so many years as like, I can move on now. You know, this stuff, you know, I have health issues that I'm going to deal with as I move forward. And I, you know, I'm very stable right now, but I, you know, I'm always going to have some kind of mental health issues moving forward. But this is in the past, you know, and, and. So there was kind of almost a symbolic, just like, here's this big chunk of my life. It happened, and now I'm moving on. Um, so that was important, too, for me. The book closes with you saying, I'm not crazy anymore, but I'm still nuts. Yeah. And it seems like a very John Porcelino, <laughs> Zen Cohen. Um, I'm wondering if there's any kind of self-understanding that you reached by the end of the book whether in writing it or just the end of that journey? I mean, the thing that I realized that was interesting to look back on is that the time all this terrible stuff was happening, I actually look back fondly on those years. I wouldn't want to necessarily relive those moments, but that kind of mysterious feeling that I was talking about that has kind of moved me through life that tip of the tongue feeling, which is is beautiful to me. It's like the thing that draws me forward into life. What I found was that that mysterious, beautiful feeling is present always, even in these incredibly painful, horrible (laughs) experiences. It's running there like a current below the surface all the time. And... That awareness is um, a consolation, maybe, for the tough stuff we go through in life. It's all a part of one thing. You know, your life starts at some point and moves on through it. And you can try to divide it up 
into little pieces, but really it's this one big thing. And, uh, you know, that's probably the way I think about the world as well. You know, you can divide this world up into a bunch of little pieces, but ultimately it's one big thing. And, uh, you know, so to sit down and put the book together and kind of face that stuff in a way where I'm working with it day in and day out, just on paper, and, and a way of describing these things was, uh, you know, moving to me as well. And, uh, yeah, that's that's my my big lesson, I think, from all this. Well, thank you so much for, for being here today. Thank you. This is Betsy Shepard for Profiles. Thank you for listening. Today, my guest was John Porcelino. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Pashkash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. Profiles.